Welcome back to another episode of Creedle. I'm delighted to welcome my friend Larry Chat back on the show today for, I don't know, you've probably been on the podcast 10 times or so, Larry, but it's always a pleasure to have <laughs> Seems you. Seems like it. Yeah. Yeah, it's great to be back. Thanks for inviting me. Um, we, we always seem to have some sort of internet glitches, so let's hope that doesn't happen today. We do. Well, we already had, it wasn't an internet glitch per se, but we had some technical glitches with your microphone. Um, still not sure what yeah, that was about, yeah. but uh maybe satan really doesn't want people to hear what you have to say larry i don't know it's the only the only plausible explanation <laughs> it's the only possible explanation <laughs> well let's uh let's dive in today we're doing a part two of our previous discussion and for users who did not listen to that one the title was i think what is pope francis doing and in that uh, larry and i dove into some of the recent comments that the pope has made and explored uh larry's some of larry's recent writing that articulates a uh, a view of Pope Francis that is, uh, I think, well, certainly balanced and charitable, and certainly a far cry from the sort of rad trad critiques of him, but also a far cry from uh, just being a an, a an unapologetic apologist for everything he does. And that interpretation of Francis views him as someone who, um, who has certain theological sympathies that uh, can tend towards a moral latitudinarianism, uh, a big tent church. We talked about the desire, uh, the tendency on the part of Jesuits to desire a a heaven full of sinners, and we compared it sort of cheekily to the Dominicans who desire a world full of saints. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, Larry, maybe we can start there. Just give like a sixty second summary of of that article that we discussed, and then we'll 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 continue on and talk about some of Pope Francis's recent recent comments in light of uh, in light of what you've already written. Yeah, just as a refresher, I mean, the a couple of articles I wrote, um, Catholic World Report, National Catholic Register, uh, were raising certain questions about, especially some of the changes that had been made by Pope Francis at the Pontifical Academy for Life, the John Paul II Institute in Rome, as well as some of his Episcopal appointments, a conference that was held at the Gregorian University on Amoris Laetitia, all of which sort of, and, and certain ambiguities in Amoris Laetitia, all of which point in, in the direction of Pope Francis desiring uh, the church to go in a different direction in her moral theology, to depart somewhat from John Paul II and Veritati Splendor. Uh, his Pope Francis' apologist view this is just a pure organic development of Veritati Splendor, but his critics, such as myself, see it more as a kind of modification of Veritatis in the direction of what we used to call back in the day uh, proportionalism, which was a moral theory that said, really, you don't want to say that anything is intrinsically evil because circumstances can always mitigate things. So my, the gist of my, my, my essay was that, that Pope Francis seems to want to turn the church's moral teachings, the commandments, into ideals uh, that we all fall short of, and that therefore um, we need to look at whether or not people really are in mortal sin, whether they can go to communion, these sorts of things, because nobody ever measures up to the ideal. And so he wants to focus on circumstances and discernment and accompaniment in a way that's rather fuzzy, that doesn't really seem to make very clear and neat sort of distinctions between moral norms that are exceptionless and moral norms that are not. So that was kind of my point, yes. Now, since our last conversation and since you published that piece in the National Catholic Register in which you explored this sort of the, the, the juxtaposition of some of Francis's work and proportionalism, uh, we've seen some significant developments. One of those is the release of the apostolic letter Desiderio Desideravi, if I'm pronouncing that even remotely correctly. Uh, and the I second so. the second is, is Pope Francis's um, sort of re repentance pilgrimage, I think he called it, to Canada, in which he apologized on behalf of the church for some of the... Uh, abuses committed in government-run Canadian schools, those abuses perpetrated primarily, but not exclusively, against uh, Indigenous Canadian children. And on the way back uh, from that trip on the plane, I mean, this is just 101, Larry, we know that when Pope Francis is making freewheeling comments on airplanes to reporters, things are not going to go well. Uh, yeah. But but he made yeah. he made some, some, some eye-catching comments, shall we say. But maybe let's yeah. start with uh, Desiderio Desiradavi. Uh, what is sure. that document saying? I read your piece in the National Catholic Register exploring this. In fact, my 
my uh, ordinary here in Chicago made a made a somewhat uh, less than great appearance in your critique of the, the piece. Uh, but tell tell me what is what is uh, Desiderio all about, uh, and 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 how does this sort of come to bear on your interpretation of Francis? Well, first off, it's in some ways a beautiful document, and I and I said so in in my critique. It's uh, it's about it's sixty five paragraphs long, so it's not a real long. Uh, piece and it's a meditation on the significance and the meaning of the liturgy and he's got a lot of great things to say in there about liturgy as mystery uh liturgy as requiring silence and and you know liturgy as symbolic and how modern human beings have lost the appreciation for the symbolic and so on and so forth so in a lot of ways it was rather boilerplate papal uh commentary and in many ways a beautiful thing but the thing that struck me about it was he did talk in there, but two things that really stood out. First, he did talk about the need to get rid of liturgical abuses in the Novus Ordo. Uh, you know, as we like to say, uh, pray the black, do the red. Uh, the red are the rubrics, the black are the words, and let's not deviate too much from that. Uh, and he really was saying, okay, we shouldn't be doing that. But my point is that unlike Traditiones Custodes, which was his liturgical document that really put the traditional Latin mass in its place, put severe restrictions on it, ordered bishops to restrict it, had certain canonical disciplines imposed upon it. In other words, Traditiones Custodes had teeth to it. It had sanction to it. It had bite to it. Whereas Desiderio, even as it's sort of saying, let's, let's not do these liturgical abuses anymore, guys, it has no sanctions. It has no bite. It has no teeth. Whereas in Traditiones, he comes down hard on the traditional Latin mass. In Desiderio, he's just sort of tut-tutting at, at those who, who would abuse the Novus Ordo. It's like, oh, come on, guys. Can we just cut it out? Uh, so one wonders how serious he actually is about reigning in such abuses, especially as I noted that he has elevated your ordinary, Cardinal Supic. That's him to the discastery on liturgy, uh, and, and yet Cardinal Supic, who has now really cracked down on the traditional Latin Mass, uh, seems rather either oblivious to or approving of all kinds of liturgical abuses that take place within the Archdiocese of Chicago. At, at regular Novus Ordo masses. So it does raise the question, I raised the question in the essay, how serious is Pope Francis about cleaning up the liturgical abuses in Novus Ordo masses? How serious is he? So that that was the first criticism that I raised, because it doesn't seem like he's that serious about it. Yeah, um, I want to come back to uh, to your second criticism, but to comment on that briefly, it is hard to avoid viewing these documents side by side, Traditionis Custodis and Desiderio, because the second was published on almost the the first anniversary of the first, and so right. there 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 is at least an implicit linkage between the two, and of course when tradition traditions came out, there were many many think pieces written by people Catholics of the more traditional persuasion, who would say, Holy Father, why are you coming down so hard on the traditional Latin Mass when you won't stop the abuses that are happening in the Novus Ordo? And you and I have talked about that previously, and in fact. Larry, I, di I distinctly remember your comments on Traditionus Custodis when we had a conversation about that. That was that was your chief complaint and my chief complaint in our conversation about Traditionus Custodis. That it's it's you know we get it if the Pope wants to move towards you know one singular expression of the Roman right. I understand that. However, sure. uh, while he's advancing that notion, he's not actually moving towards one distinct expression because all of these other sort of abusive expressions exist in the Novus Ordo, and they're not they're they're never corrected. So the response of many was. Holy Father, um, why are you doing this when you're not doing that? That being correcting these ridiculous guitar mass. I mean, not not that a guitar mass is is in itself wrong, but like a you know a guitar mass in which there are flagrant abuses committed throughout the liturgy. Uh, all these things that are not certainly not. In how, how about the priest in Chicago who ended mass by blessing the congregation with his guitar like it was a monstrance right. that, was, that he was. Well, you know, let, uh, dear God, we rock as you roll or rock us as we roll or something or other like that. It was crazy. Yeah. Or the uh, we, we played, I think it was last December, we played uh, some video from a Christmas Eve mass. In Father Flager. Yeah. <laughs> Our friend what Father Flager. What I call Flager. The, the Cirque du Soleil mass, yes. the light show mass. Correct. So why is he allowed to do that? And the Institute of Christ the King Sovereign Priest is no longer allowed to hold public masses in the city of Chicago, right? 
So that that was yeah. the that was the chief critique. And so to me, Larry, I see this as a response, as sort of a you know the tossing of a token towards people who had that critique of it. But like you said, it um, it falls flat, I think, because it has no teeth. And not only does it have no teeth, but it is quite obviously, quite evidently, at odds with some of Francis's own actions, like for example, promoting Cardinal Supich to the dicastery on the liturgy when he's the one who presides over, I mean, not directly in the mass itself, but his, his priests commit some of the worst liturgical abuses with absolutely zero consequences for it. So yeah. I think, you know, I, I, I'm very sympathetic to the eye rolling at this document, because like you said, it says a lot of beautiful things. Wonderful. Like you also said in the piece, it's a big nothing burger because uh, yeah. it's never going to actually be connected to corrective disciplinary action. It's a big nothing burger too, because even all the beautiful bits uh, that were in there have really been said many times before by other popes and other theologians, and quite frankly, they said it better. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, we've reached a state now where it's almost as if if Pope Francis doesn't issue a document that is, it, you know, isn't outrageously bad, we're happy that at the very least it has some positive elements to it. Uh, I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration. I actually loved Laudato Si, you know, and the joy of the gospel and so on. Uh, and I liked large parts of Amoris Laetitia. And I liked this liturgy document to an extent as well. But others have said it better. And, and really, the, the heart and soul, therefore, of, of Desiderio is, number one, uh, the fact that he says, let's, let's stop these liturgical abuses, but then doesn't offer any, any sanction for doing so. But then the second thing that I critiqued was his sort of insistence that the Mass of Paul VI, the Novus Ordo, the new Mass, whatever you want to call it, that that is the singular right of, of, of the Roman Church, and that that's what he wants it to be. Now, the problem with that is that, okay, I get it. He wants most, he wants most parishes to have the Novus Ordo, and he, he doesn't really want the traditional Latin Mass around anymore. But, but it's simply empirically false to say that there's only one form uh, you know, of, of the Roman Rite. Uh, there are other rites within within the Roman Church, um, and so that's just not a true statement on, on the face of it. Um, I also wonder why, given all the liturgical abuses that go on, why he would be so insistent on this kind of uniformity when uh, uniformity of liturgy when he doesn't seem to want to impose uniformity of liturgy in, in any practical way. I mean, you go to, you go to masses in some places and it's hard to even recognize them as, as the Roman liturgy, you know, and, and yet who cares? We were, we were, so really to me, what the whole thing boils down to is this. I don't like traditionalists. I don't like the Latin mass. I want them to go away. I'm Pope. I'm going to make them go away. End of story. I think that's what this is about. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's a largely correct interpretation uh, that I agree with. I I do. We always point out, right, when we talk about this. I think you can't understand Francis without understanding the people who are advising him. And it is troubling to me that people like Cardinal Supich are the ones whispering in his ear, saying, presumably, Holy Father, let me help you understand the American Church. <laughs> let me help you understand what's actually yeah. going on. You know, I know you. You may have heard in the in that rag EWTN, you know, the National Catholic Register about these abuses going on in my archdiocese, uh, Holy Father. But let me tell you about the real problems in the American Church. Um, and so, you know, his his information is only is as good as his sources, and I have zero confidence in the sources from the American Church with which he has chosen to surround himself. But it is definitely difficult to view this as a as a, as anything less than simply an affront to those uh, those of us who really are serious about liturgy and and take it. And taken incredibly seriously. As well, yeah, you know, the, the fact is there are some loud voices coming out of the traditionalist movement who are rather sectarian, uh, divisive. They've accused the Pope publicly uh, in print of being uh, an overt heretic. Mm -hmm. um, and since Traditionis Custodis came out, they've been advocating for developing underground masses, secret priest, man, you know, secret yeah. liturgies and so on. And, and yeah, so there, there's that. The, there's that rattle in the cage, and 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 they they make noise. Uh, guys like Dr. Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, guys like that. Yeah, they're out there, mm -hmm. and so it's rather easy for Cardinal Supich or somebody like that, or, or you know, to go to Pope Francis and say, 
here, here's an example of what I'm talking about. Look right. at this guy on Facebook and what right. he said about you. Um, and yet the, the fact is it's a caricature. It's a stereotype. Most, most traditionalists do not, do not fall into those categories. And so, but you can only imagine what Cardinal Supic is whispering in his ear. Holy father, conservative American Catholics are all a bunch of pro Trump exactly. yeah. nut jobs. They're all about war and capitalism and the death penalty. And they only care about abortion and they hate you. And they think you're a heretic and they hate Vatican too. And this is the American church. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. And the other thing is this, we have to take into consideration the fact that Pope Francis is from Argentina. And it might just be the case. I don't know this at all. I really, this is a shot in the dark, but I do know many South Americans. I used to live in Latin America and there's a certain mentality in Latin America of resentment against the United States. They're, they're not, they don't have really warm, fuzzy feelings for America for the United States. And so the thing, the fact is maybe Pope Francis is just rather willing uh, to hear such things about the United States from somebody like, so he's, in other words, he's predisposed to think not well of the American church up front to begin with. Yeah, I think that's probably, I think that's probably true. Uh, but it's, it's hard. <clears throat> I don't know. It's hard to accept that as an explanation uh, without, without clear evidence indicating that, but it does certainly seem to be the case that when Pope Francis thinks of the radicalists, he thinks primarily of the Americans uh, and the loud, the, you know, the loudest voices that have have sort of been the target of his uh, his criticisms seem to be the American voices, including, by the way, EWTN, who he has called out specifically um, as sort of an example of the sort of corrosive, divisive uh, attitudes that he is trying to uh, fight against. So. Well, yeah, EWTN has had some things that are rather over the top, if you ask me. Oh, I totally agree with you. Yeah, for uh, sure. When you look, when you look at Raymond Arroyo and his papal posse uh, show there on EWTN, I, I think it's in very poor form to for for EWTN to, to basically devote you know an entire hour, half hour, whatever it is, to a sustained criticism. Of, of the Pope. I, I just, I, I think that's in very poor form at the very least. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I honestly don't have a, I don't have a firm sense of everything that happens at the EWTN. I don't think I've ever watched a program of EWTN, you know, start to finish. Uh, it's just not something that I, I do or particularly care about. I've definitely read things on EWTN's various uh, media sites that are highly critical of the Holy Father. And critical in ways, I mean, we're, we're being critical now, but critical in ways that I think are just simply uncharitable. Um, and Well, that's the thing. I yeah. would never accuse the Pope of being a heretic. Right. Uh, and certainly there's nothing that he has written that cannot be interpreted in a thoroughly orthodox way. Uh, and as much as I don't like Tradiciones Custodes, it has to be obeyed because he is the canonical legislator of the church. Uh, and, and, and so the, a certain amount of respect is due to the Holy Father, even from someone like me who's, who's critical of some of the things that he's done and said. Um, yeah, so uh, an out, you know, and it doesn't help that someone like Raymond Arroyo, and I don't want to get bogged down into this, because I write for the Register, and they're owned by EWTN, and they're very good to me. Uh, but when you have Raymond Arroyo, who's also now a regular commentator on Fox News, uh, who's clearly very, very partisan in a Republican right-wing way. And then you have him on the papal posse on EWTN as the main voice critical of the Pope. That only fuels, I think, in the Pope's mind, the stereotype that Supich and others are probably feeding Absolutely, him, yeah. That the American church is riddled with Raymond Arroyo types. Yep. Yeah, and, well, th and this, this is one yet one more example, Larry, of how Trump has just sort of broken everything and, and everyone's brains. and. Um, I think as soon as as soon as Trump started to sort of affection for Trump started to uh, infiltrate the rad trad Americans, I think we sort of it, it was just it was all downhill from there because I mean, we had Taylor Marshall appearing at Trump MAGA rallies and things like that. And so oh, yeah. in the Pope's eyes, you know, not not wholly without evidence, I would add uh, the the American the problematic part of the American church is now associated with Trumpism, you know? Um, well, and not to mention the fact that Archbishop Vigano, who has been this very good point. visceral, horrible public critic of Pope Francis, yeah, good point. saying that he's essentially a false pope leading a false church, he has found 
his most resonant audience in the United States with people like Taylor Marshall. I think outside of the United States, I doubt that Archbishop Vigano has much of an audience at all. Um, so, you know, it's it's not entirely a straw man that the Pope is going after here yeah. in Traditionis Custodes and, and in other moves. Um, but, but I still believe, straw man or not, that it's a pastorally unwise move mm-hmm. to make uh, because it undercuts his other stated goals of wanting, uh, you know, a church that's open to dialogue, a church that goes to the peripheries, a synodal church, a listening church. Uh, but I'm, I'm only going to be synodal and listening and dialoguing with the people that actually like me. Any critical voices, I don't want to hear, and I'm going to sanction them, and I'm going to put them down. That doesn't bode well for a synodal church that listens to the peripheries. Uh, and so there's an element of hypocrisy there uh, that, that I think undermines the Pope's overall message. The church should be a listening church, a church that dialogues. It should be a synodal church. But it's hard to believe that Pope Francis is serious about a synodal church when he rules by moda proprios and seems to vindictively go after people who go after him. So, you know, it's like, well, you it's like schoolyard time now. You know, people are, you screamed at me, so I'm going to scream back at you. That's, I don't think that's very papal, actually. But that's, that's you know, he's human. Yeah. <laughs> he's a human being. And that is he, true. Uh, you know, and, and maybe John Paul and Benedict were thick-skinned. Maybe Pope Francis is more thin-skinned. I think if I were Pope, I would be thin-skinned too. So. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. I would be, <laughs> I would as well. be very thin-skinned. All right. So that's not really so much a criticism as it is a lament that I think that it does undermine his credibility, hmm. and and that's a shame because I, I want him to have credibility. Yeah, I think that's fair. I uh, have one more question on this specific topic for you, Larry, and then we can talk about the Pope's uh, the Pope's airplane comments. A, a friend wrote me. He knows that I am friends with you. And he read your piece in the uh, register, and he said to me, "I wonder, I wonder who this is, who this is aimed at." He said, I, "You know, this is a, this is sort of helpful and perhaps even cathartic, but I wonder who Larry has in mind when he's thinking of this. Is this is he hoping that this crosses the Pope's desk? Because you even end with sort of a plea to the Holy Father. I think, uh, you know, what you would say to the Holy Father if you could. Yeah. So is this? Are you hoping this reaches the Pope's desk, or is this?" Is this for the uh, the lay person in the pew who shares some of your frustrations and um, and is tempted to throw up his or her hands and just say, you know, I give up? I think it's it's more the latter than the former. Uh, I would be unbelievably surprised and shocked if some poor little essay that I wrote in the register made it across the Pope's desk. If if it does, it does. I, I highly doubt it. Um, to be honest with you, let's just let, let me put it this way too without giving you too much information, so as certain persons would be outed, uh, I was not going to write anything about this at all. Um, My blogging, my message is about race source, mont theology, communio theology, Vatican II. In a lot of ways, I I like to avoid this kind of inside baseball ecclesiastical politics. And, And so I really did not want to get down in the mud and start saying, hey, Pope Francis, you're, you're goofing up here. Listen up. No, I didn't want to do that. But I have friends, very dear friends, who are scholars, uh, theologians, who teach at, um, let's just put it this way, um, major institutions whose jobs are vulnerable if they were to speak out and to point out certain ambiguities in what the Pope has said and written in things like Amoris Laetitia chapter 8. And so I was getting messages from them saying, you know, because I had shared with them, oh, I don't want to get down into this sort of, right, yeah. I don't like criticizing the Pope in public. But they encouraged me to do so, to sort of be their voice, because I'm in a position now as a retired theologian who just gets to sit in his armchair and pontificate from my keyboard. Uh, I don't have to worry about anything, but they have to worry about, you know, their mortgage, their kids, losing their livelihoods. And the fact is that we are living right now in a certain ecclesiastical climate where if you teach at certain high-level institutions associated with the church, your job is in jeopardy if you criticize Amoris Laetitia. So in some sense, I was being kind of 
charitable towards my friends and 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 and, and writing on on their behalf. But and but more than that, the audience really was just knowing who reads the National Catholic Register. Um, my audience is actually in 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 the direction of those Catholics who are simply confused by all this. What what am I to make of of what's going on in Rome? What am I to make of of what the Pope is saying? And what all I tried to do was to give it some context, which is, hey, look, yeah. the pendulum swings one way, the pendulum swings another, and ever since Vatican II, the Church has been caught in this pendulum swing between progressive, conservative, traditional, resource mont, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, and there are all these debates in moral theology, proportionalism, situationalism, uh, natural law theory, deontology, blah, 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 all this academic stuff. And it just struck me, well, one way of making sense of this is to see that the Pope seems somewhat favorably disposed towards a kind of moral theology that has its genesis in the 60s and the 70s. And he seems to be kind of re-empowering those guys yep. in the church doesn't mean he completely agrees with them, but I think he favors maybe the kind of pastoral approach that those moral theologies encourage more than he maybe completely agrees with their situation ethics and that sort of thing. So, it, you know, it's complex. So I just tried to give people some some context. Uh, some people are charged and accuse me, oh, you're attacking the Pope. Eh, I'm not really attacking the Pope. Mm. I'm just trying to clarify where, where he is sure. in this swinging pendulum where he is on the spectrum yeah. um, of, of moral theological ideas. And I offered my opinion about that. And there it is. Well, I found, I but found, the, yeah, I mean, I found the first, right. I found your first piece, the, the one on proportionalism, super helpful. I personally found the second one cathartic in the sense that it gave voice to what I wanted to say, but didn't have the words. I wonder when your friends at these institutions reach out to you, do you incur? I mean, I guess it's I guess it's hard to know how to counsel them, but do you ever encourage them to speak out? And I ask this because the like the the reason I think we arrive at points like this where they are their jobs are in jeopardy if they speak out is because you know one person realizes that their job is in jeopardy if if they speak out, so they decide to shut up, and that makes the the second person down the line less likely to speak up because they'll be th there'll be one less person on their side, so to speak. Well, and so yeah, so I, uh, there, there's a story that uh, Robert George tells, or at least has told before, Robert George, the, the Princeton, the Catholic Princeton professor of sure, jurisprudence. Yeah. And he laments, has lamented in the past, that he has many, many colleagues who, as they're being trained uh, in, in the academy, say to him, you know, Robbie, I'm so glad you're so vocal on this. I wish I could be, but I'm still getting my master's or I'm getting my doctorate or right. I'm still waiting for yeah. tenure. And so at every point along the way, they're saying, once I get tenure, then I'll really be able to speak my mind. But what happens is they get tenure and they're sort of like, they're, they're so comfortable with their sort of uh, bougie existence in the academy and they've made all the wrong friends along the way that they no longer have the courage to, or even the conviction or the belief uh, that we're, would, you know, that would be required to speak out. And so, um, so it just, it just creates this, it creates this echo chamber. And the, the sad reality is, you know, it, it might require people having the courage to maybe face the prospect of losing their jobs if we're going to change anything. And this, this is yeah, exactly yeah. how we arrive at the point where like, you know, to say that a man can be a woman if he really wants to be is, you know, or, or to say that you don't believe that is a fireable offense in some institutions now because 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 people have refused to assent to right, what right. should be plainly apparent. You know what I mean? Well, you've described it beautifully because I went through similar things. You 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 keep your mouth shut until, you know, you get a job and, and then you get a job and you keep your mouth shut until you have tenure. Yeah. And then you get tenure and you keep your mouth shut until you are raised a full professor and you get certain pay raises. Right. Right. And then you realize you need to keep your mouth shut if you want to have good standing in the academic guild at various conferences and you want to get invited to give talks at various conferences. In other words, you don't want to become a pariah yeah. in your own guild. And so, yeah, even after tenure and promotion and all that, you're still, you get trained into this sort of silence. Now, all, all that being said, you know, I misspoke somewhat when I said these guys are simply concerned about their their jobs, their incomes, that sort of thing, although they are. Some of it has to do with the fact, and I'll, I'll, okay, I, I will say this much, that some of them teach at pontifical universities. Yeah. And so they're concerned with more than just their own jobs. They're concerned with the loss of pontifical status for the institution at which they work. 
and they would be very sad, you know, and guilty if, say, something that they wrote became responsible for yeah. the whole, the, for the pontifical status uh, to be removed uh, in, in that regard. So there, and plus, you know, what I was being encouraged to do was to write very pointedly and specifically about Pope Francis, because some of the people that I know have written critical things mm-hmm. about, about some aspects of what are going, what's going on in the church today, certain theological currents in the church today, without mentioning Pope Francis by name or citing any particular documents by Pope Francis. They, they, they'll, they'll, in a sense, take shots at all the people around Pope Francis and things that they've said and done. Got it. Like, they'll go after, like I will. You go after a soupage or somebody like that. Uh, or go after this conference that was at the Gregorian. Uh, in May on Memoris Letizia that was attacking very Tati Splendor left and right. You can mention stuff like that, uh, but then just stop short of bringing the Pope into it for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. And so what they were encouraging me to do was simply, you know, maybe maybe you can take the next step. Maybe you can go the next 10 yards and actually drag the Pope himself into this mess. And so And so I did. And I'm glad I did. I don't regret it, but I certainly don't want to make a living off of <laughs> criticizing the Holy Father. Yeah, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, well, thanks for walking me through uh, that. It, it definitely uh, definitely makes sense from my vantage point. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. The second thing I wanted to talk to you about today was this, uh, what I might characterize as sort of disastrous um, in-flight interview. Uh, again, this is not the first time that Pope Francis has gotten himself into trouble giving an in-flight interview to a bunch of journalists, but he was coming back from this trip to Canada, and I have the the transcript right in front of me, so I can just read exactly what was said here rather than any commentary, and then we can just talk about it. Claire Jeangrave, or Jeangrave of Religion News Service said, Hello, Holy Father. Good evening. Many Catholics, but also many theologians, believe that the development of church doctrine regarding contraceptives is necessary. Even it appears that your predecessor, John Paul I, thought that a total ban needed reconsideration. What are your thoughts on this? Are you open to a re-evaluation in this regard? Or is there a possibility for a couple to consider contraceptives? Pope Francis responds, I understand this is very timely, but know that dogma, morality, is always in a path of development, but development in the same direction. Obviously, he's not speaking English, so we'll, we'll, take, you know, we'll, we'll assume there are, there are some tra- translation limitations and probably some errors here. But I continue. To use one thing that is clear, I think I've said it other times here, for the development of a question either moral, for theological development, let's say, or dogmatic, there is a rule that is very clear and illuminating, which I said another time. It is the one that Vincent de Lorraine made in the 10th century, more or less. He was a French saint. He says that true doctrine, in order to go forward, to develop, must not be quiet. It develops ut annis consolidator dilatator tempore sublimator atate. That is, it consolidates with time, it expands and consolidates, and becomes more steady, but is always progressing. That is why the duty of theologians is research, theological reflection. You cannot do theology with a no in front of it. Then the magisterium will be the one to say no if it has gone too far. Come back. But theological development must be open, because that's what theologians are for, and the magisterium must help to understand the limits. On the issue of contraception, I know there is a publication out on this issue and other marriage issues. These are the proceedings of a Congress and in a Congress that are hypotheses. Then they discuss among themselves and make proposals. We have to be clear. Those who made this Congress did their duty because they tried to move forward in doctrine, but in an ecclesial sense, not out, as I said, with that rule of St. Vincent of Lorraine. And then the magisterium will say, yes, it is good or it is not good. But so many things have changed. Think, for example, about atomic weapons. Your, your uh, master's thesis topic, if I recall, Larry. Yes. Today, yes. it is officially declared that the use and possession of atomic weapons is immoral. Think about the death penalty. Before the death penalty, yes, but today I can tell you that we are close to immorality there because the moral conscience has developed well. To be clear, when dogma and morality develop, it is fine, but in the direction of the three rules of Vincent of Lorraine, I think this is very clear. A church that does not develop its thought in an ecclesial sense is a church that goes backwards. And this is the problem of so many who call themselves traditional today. They are not traditional. They are in inditrists inditrists uh, yeah i had no idea what yeah that i'm not means. sure <laughs> they are going backwards without roots that's the way it has been done so they say this is you know the pope is using quotes that's the way it was done in the last century Indiatrism, looking backward is sin because it does not go forward with the church 
And instead, someone described tradition. I think it said, I think I said it in one of the speeches as the living faith of the dead. And instead, for these indeterists who call themselves traditionalists, it is the dead faith of the living. We're almost done. Tradition is the root of inspiration to go forward in the church, always these roots, and indeterism, looking backward, is always closed. It is important to understand well the role of tradition, which is always open like the roots of the tree. The tree grows like that. No. A composer had a very beautiful phrase, Gustav Mahler, said that tradition in this sense is the guarantee of the future. It is not a museum piece. If you conceive tradition as closed, this is not Christian tradition. Always it is the root substance that takes you forward, forward, forward. That's why what you say above thinking, carrying forward faith and morals while going in the direction of the roots of the substance goes well with these three rules I mentioned of Vincent of Lorraine. And that's the end of that answer. To me, Larry, a brief comment before I turn the mic back to you. I read this and think this is actually a nothing burger, not really a big deal. It seems to me more like he's evading the actual question of contraception, not a problem. And then to me, there's a, there's a tonal shift when he, when he talks about the death penalty. Um, and his, uh, his characterization of the death penalty, I think, has been problematic previously in his papacy, but where he talks about you know, we're close to immorality because all of a sudden, because the moral conscience has developed, that is a red flag to me uh, in thinking of sort of how dogma and morality develop. And he talks about that uh, further. And then he sort of starts going going after the traditionalisms and how, you know, um, how uh, they're just going backwards. And that's definitely what, certainly not what progress is. You have to develop forwards. If you, if you do theology with a no in front of it, you're not doing theology, et cetera, et cetera. I think to me, that's when the comment starts to go off the rails. Prior to that was, uh, was, was, you know, I think just sounded like typical evasion to me. Uh, but yes, I think the yes. second, the second half of this is where I think there's a problem. What do you think? Oh, I think the whole thing is a hot mess of evasion, deflection, uh, word salad, verbiage. It, 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 it contains much that is true, much that is ambiguous and much that is just flat out confusing. Uh, I agree with you. I think it was, uh, uh, in many ways, an evasive non-answer. But then the question arises, why a non-answer? If if that had been John Paul, for example, on the plane, and a reporter had said, Holy Father, you've written that one can never use contraception, uh, artificial contraception. Can, Can you ever imagine that the church will ever reach a stage where it changes that teaching or modifies it? I think Pope John Paul would have said uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Next question. Uh, I've, I've written on that. I've, I've made my decisions on that. The church has spoken clearly on that. Right. Uh, and, and yes, perhaps we can nuance and develop how it's pastorally applied. Now, it, so my point is this. If, if that is what Pope Francis is getting after here, all right, that, okay, the doctrine is going to remain the same, but we might change how it's pastorally applied. This would be right in line with what I was saying earlier, which is you turn, you, you affirm the truth of the doctrine. You say, oh, yeah, I, I, uh, contraception is wrong. That's the doctrine of the church. That's never going to change. Uh, development of doctrine can never go backward. It's always only, you know, organically and forward and so on. But, 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 when you, you know, as he says all the time, reality is greater than ideas and uh, mercy is greater than doctrine and law. And so when we apply it pastorally speaking, the net effect is that we might have to develop our moral theology to, to such an extent to realize that the circumstances in actual concrete people, you know, people's lives in the concrete, not concrete people, but people's lives in the concrete, yeah. um, might actually mean that they're not doing anything wrong. This is mm-hmm. that book that came out from the Pontifical Academy for Life. That's essentially what it's saying. Circumstances can, well, to use technical moral theological language, the circumstances can change the species of the moral object so that it can go from a negative moral precept that is exceptionless and always wrong and may never be engaged in to something that, given the right circumstances, can be engaged in, and not only can be engaged in, but perhaps should be. Uh, that there can be situations in which it might be immoral for a couple not to use contraception. Uh, say, for example, you've already had 37 kids and the wife's done, and she might die if she has another. So, okay, it would be immoral not to take contraception in a case like that. So these are all questions that the Pontifical Academy for Life is floating out there. And and the Pope just sort of, once again, just sort of dismisses the alarm that has been raised by some quarters over this. But, oh, no, that's what theology does. Theology kind of pushes the envelope. And now it's my job to make sure the envelope doesn't get 
open too far or something. I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, that leaves me, that leaves me suspicious that he's just opening the door to the idea that perhaps the teaching can be modified. Maybe, you know, we'll, have, we'll just have to wait and see. I don't know. But, but the uh, press conference was certainly ambiguous and troubling in some ways it, because of its evasion. By the way, he got the century of St. Vincent of Lorraine wrong. He said 10th century. It's 5th century. So um, I don't know if that means anything. Um, and by the way, I also think that he... I'm glad that he appealed to St. Vincent's criterion because what, what St. Vincent actually said was that doctrine dogmas can develop, they can change, um, but they can never contradict what has always been believed by everyone at all times. So you can expand it, as St. Vincent said, you can expound upon it, you, you can improve upon it, you can even modify it in some peripheral ways, but what you cannot do is contradict something that has been taught uniformly and has been believed by everyone everywhere from all times. Uh, but the Pope seemed to imply, as, as, you know, we're always looking forward, it's the future, baby. You know, we're not, we're not looking backwards like those tradies. We're looking forward, and I don't even know what that means. Yeah. The church doesn't look backwards. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. uh, of course it looks backwards. That's the whole notion of tradition. Yeah, tradition is alive. Right. It's living. It evolves. But it's it's there as a historical datum that yeah. we have, you know, there was a St. Augustine. There was a Thomas Aquinas. And you actually have to look backward and see what they actually wrote. Um, you're not reinventing the wheel all the time. And I know he doesn't mean that. But right. come on. His words are slippery and, and not careful. And just not not very meaningful to be honest which is why no. which is why you and I can come away with saying I don't really know what he's doing maybe he's opening the door to changing the doctrine yeah. here maybe he's just trying to evade the answer because he doesn't want to get into a, a tussle with the reporter you know um, and either of those answers is plausible given the word salad that he used I think well and also we have to keep in mind that I think I think that the latter thing about you know that he was he was just trying to avoid a difficult question from a reporter because one of the things I do know in talking to people is that one of the traits that this Pope has is that when he's in person with people, you know, being very personal and in proximity to them, he doesn't like conflict. He doesn't like, uh, in other words, he likes to at least be irrenic and to tell people mm -hmm. things that, that he thinks they want to hear. Yeah. He's a pastor. He, He's a pastor. And yeah, not, so. not, not that every pastor does that, but I think his, his pastoral sensitivities tend to make him. Yeah, to exactly. Be, to, so yeah. he knows that this reporter is asking, please, Holy Father, change the teaching. Yeah. Can you? Will right, you? Right. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Breathlessly. Yeah. And he's looking at her with a kind heart and he's saying to himself, well, I know what she wants me to say. Right. And I really can't say that. Yeah. But I'm also not simply going to close the door in her face. I'm no Rottweiler. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and and so I'm going to talk in these rather vague terms about development and all that. Larry, so, I don't yeah. know if I, I may have told you the story before, but I have a this is this is secondhand. So I have a I have a source who told me that a prelate of the American church told him this. Right. So uh, the story goes that Pope Francis was talking at some point in the last 24 months with a group of American bishops and Pope Fran the topic of Eucharistic coherence came up and specifically excommunication or, or denying, barring from communion, politicians or public figures who support, publicly support abortion, like Pelosi. And the Holy Father apparently said, based on this report, uh, apparently said, it is not an issue of excommunication. They have excommunicated themselves by embracing this thing that is so clearly contrary to church teaching. But, he said, in a pastoral sense, or from a pastoral perspective, it is it is basically a pastoral issue on deciding whether or not to bar them from communion itself. Now, yeah. the you know the 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 sourcing on that story to me is not totally clear, so I'm not it, I'm not advancing that as a complete gospel that it, that it happened. But it was an interesting story to me, relayed again by an intermediary who claimed to have had this story told him by the prelate himself. Uh, and if true, it really does illustrate to me what you're saying, that Pope Francis's primary concern is always pastoral, even if it's misguided, you know, because a, a pastor, of course, 
I think would be, would be more like Archbishop Cordelione, who has tried to work with Pelosi to help her understand the teaching uh, and yeah. then is trying to prevent her from endangering her soul further by barring her from communion. That, I think, is a good pastoral approach. But to Pope Francis, I think the pastoral approach is the one that's sort of always smiling and always friendly um, and always helping people uh, draw closer to what they think they want. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it is a pastor's soul, but it's it's a very modern pastor's yeah. soul. Right. It's, it's, it's the soul it, of like a, you know, there's uh, moral therapeutic deism, right? Like the. Well, the, it kind of is because if you put the, oh, go ahead. Go well, ahead. I, was, I was just going to say that a, a, a pa- we often think today of a pastor, you know, my pastor should be my, my therapist, but actually, no, the, the point of the pastor is not to help you feel good. Uh, the point of a pastor is to help you be good and to know good. Um, and I think sometimes yeah. Pope Francis thinks the point is to help people feel good. Maybe. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. It's uh, I'm writing a blog post about it right now, where in some ways I think he's guilty of conflating uh, goodness and kindness. I mean, C.S. Lewis in his great book, The Problem of Pain, in his chapter on the divine goodness, says that everybody these days wants to talk about God's love, God's goodness, and yet what we tend to mean by goodness these days is simply kindness. Yeah, uh, we don't want a, a great uh, heavenly father we want a senile benevolence that'll simply pat us on the head and give us a quarter to go buy ice cream no matter what we've done uh and 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 i'm not saying that that's pope francis but there's an element when you read some of his talks and his off-the-cuff remarks there's a very modern element in there where it seems like at times he does equate goodness with just kindness Mm -hmm. and and reduce it to that because he's also always He's, in many ways, he's always, like he says, reality is greater than ideas. Mercy trumps law. Mercy trumps even, you know, doctrine and law uh, to the point where sometimes he speaks as if he buys into a certain vision of Jesus that's very discredited now, yeah. the whole law gospel dialectic, right? That yeah. Judaism gave us the law and Jesus came along and gave us this liberating gospel that told us, oh, you don't have to pay attention to that horrible Jewish law anymore. I'm here to liberate you from all that religious gobbledygook. Now just love your neighbor and let's get on with it. Um, you know, and that image of Jesus has been thoroughly discredited. Nobody, nobody, no theologian in their right mind follows that anymore. And yet sometimes when you when you read Pope Francis's comments on on how to, you know, pastorally approach people, it's well, you've got you've got the moral ideal over here, but now pastorally you basically have to find a way people to make them make them feel good about yep. themselves where where they are in exactly. their circumstances at, at that time yeah. Yeah. you know and i'm just oh come on where's the heroism yeah. where's the call to holiness precisely you know, for example yeah. um in very Tati splendor john paul ii has that great long beautiful meditation on the rich young man mm-hmm. who approaches jesus master what must i do to be perfect and she's oh, you know follow the commandments, blah, blah, blah. And you go, I've done that since my youth. And then she, well, if you want to be perfect, give all your money away and follow me. And there's something very interesting in that story. It's the only time in all four gospels where Jesus specifically calls somebody to follow him and they refuse. Yeah. Uh, and the gospel makes it clear it's because the young man was uh, attached to his wealth. Yep. And he said he walked away. The young man even walked away sad. Mm-hmm. Jesus made him feel bad about himself. Uh, oh dear, here I thought I was a good Jewish boy following the commandments, and I wanted yeah. I wanted this guy who everybody seems to love to tell me that I'm doing well. And instead he says, you need to give all your stuff away. Well, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Now notice, Jesus then uses that as an up. He doesn't follow after the young man. He doesn't say, oh, don't go away, don't feel bad. He, he lets him walk away, and then he turns to the ground and says, basically, this is why it's bad to have money <laughs> and lots of it. You know, uh, you can't serve both God and mammon. You can't serve. So he uses it as a teaching moment. Yeah. But notice what he did not say. He didn't say, as Pope Francis does in Amoris Laetitia, cha- paragraph 303, chapter 8, he doesn't say to the young man, you know what? If this is the most generous offer you can make to God right now in your life, if this is as far as you can go right now in the complex situation, circumstances of your life, then you can have a quiet, peaceful conscience that God accepts that because he accepts you where you are. Now, go in peace, young man. And and you know what? Try to do a little better. Maybe give a nickel away a day or something. Buy a homeless dude a coffee and and, 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 and go on from there. He doesn't. 
he, he, in other words, Jesus doesn't lower the bar yeah. of, of the evangelical call to holiness. He doesn't lower the bar in order to make people feel good about themselves. He raises the bar very high, but then he turns around and says, and that's why we have to have endless mercy and forgiveness because the bar is high. Be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's what Christ was calling us to. But at the same time, realizing, well, none of us are going to be perfect, so you have to forgive and have mercy and those sorts of things. But that's a far cry different from simply saying mercy means not not holding the the bar high at all. Right. Mercy means lowering the bar. And, and that, unfortunately, is what I think Pope Francis has done in some places. Yeah, I, I agree. We've had discussions with my five-year-old recently uh, when when she's disciplined, you know, taking privileges away, having to go to bed early for hitting her siblings, for example. And, um, you know, in these, some of these moments, we've had to have pretty detailed conversations with her about why we give her consequences, right? And the reason is because we have to teach her that life has consequences. And we teach her that because we want to shape her, her life of virtue and help her to be a good person and ultimately follow yes. in the path that Jesus laid out for us. And, but, but that's, that's not something that, that comes naturally perhaps to, uh, to a young child. So the initial thought is, oh, my parents must not love me because they're giving me a consequence, sending me to bed early. Um, and so we have to help her understand, no, we do this actually because we love you. Because if we didn't love you, we would just let you do whatever in the world you wanted, knowing that that is actually not for your good. And so I think in the same reason, today's pastor needs to think in that frame of mind, you know, what does it mean to yeah. love my flock? Yeah. How do I help them better follow the commands of Jesus? And the way to do that is not by just granting them sort of every every impulse that comes to mind and giving them sort of access to cheap grace because cheap grace won't actually transform us. And this is related to a point that I've made previously, maybe not on this podcast though, and I don't think I've made it with you, Larry, but this to me is, is one of the problems with just so much of uh, so much of today's wokeness and especially the approach to moral theology yeah. that we find in the church. It is just so damn boring because there, there's, yeah. no, there's no call yeah. to heroism. There's no call for, for action. No. There's no call to change. It's just go in peace and be well. And that's, that's yeah, not what we want. What is the specific Christian difference? Uh, what does it matter to be a Christian? If we lower the bar so far that being a Christian simply means getting along well in society and doing what everybody else is doing and don't worry about trying to be heroic and living up to, you know, to, to the gospel. That's for, in some ways we're going back. This is the flip side, but also the mirror side of, of, of the old fashioned, view that said holiness is for those celibate monks and priests and nuns. Holiness is not for the average lay person. Mm -hmm. So for, for, for a papacy that champions, you know, Vatican II as much as it does, Vatican II, Lumen Gentium, you know, put the universal call to holiness for, for laity as well as the religious front and center. Yeah. But then you, you come forward with this pastoral message that says, yeah, everybody's called to holiness, but not really, because very few people can reach that. So it's like st they're still reserving holiness for the spiritual athletes in the church, as Bishop Barron calls them, uh, and, and that it's not something for all of us. And yet we are, we are all called to holiness in our own way, whether you want to call that heroism or idealism or whatever, call it what, but it is a call to holiness. And right now it just seems like, and it is boring. It's boring to lower that bar. You're absolutely right. There's nothing challenging or inspiring about that lowered bar at all. Yeah, well, um, in the in the uh, conversation I had with the Dominican that we talked about last time, the the one who t told me that quip about Jesuits wanting to fill the yeah. earth with sinners and Dominicans to fill the world with saints, he said, "No, we insist uh, in the Thomistic tradition. We insist that uh, grace perfects nature, and that the grace for all of us to become saints is there. That there is no task too high that grace cannot help us to fulfill, if that is indeed God's will for us. And God's will for us is to become saints. Uh, so the grace is there, and." You know, this stands in stark contrast. We don't really have time. We have to wrap up here, Larry. But this stands in stark contrast to the approach that we do see in so much modern theology. Another an article that I sent you, I think, last week, uh, maybe a, maybe a couple weeks ago, is by James Martin, Father Martin, at it again. Uh, you know, lamenting that the Eucharist has been wielded as a weapon by the Archbishop of San Francisco, uh, and you know, he laments that there's not a not a a middle way that bishops follow. And of course he cites Bishop, uh, soon to be Cardinal, uh, Robert McElroy of San Diego. Um, and he chastises, uh, Cordiglione, uh, for, you know, quote, weaponizing the Eucharist when what he's really doing is calling Nancy Pelosi, uh, to be a saint because that's what we're called to do. 
Um, that's exactly. It's, it's, that's a much better calling than to simply persist uh, when she can do better with the grace that God has given her. Especially since what it is, she's not simply, and the same with Joe Biden, she's not simply saying, look, in a pluralistic society, we have to be uh, open to allowing for abortions to take place because it's just culturally unrealistic to assume that we're going to be able to do this, yada, yada, yada. That's one thing. It's another thing entirely to be an absolute advocate for the abortion license True. right up to the moment of birth and beyond yeah. where, where they speak of abortion as if it is this, they, they do speak of it as, as a fundamental human right, mm-hmm. as a fundamental, and it's a fundamental violation of a basic human right, not to allow women to, to kill their, their unborn children. Uh, and so that's outrageous, actually, that uh, Father Martin would say that. About us. But let me put it this way, too. Father Martin is a fraud he, because he, he doesn't really mean that. Because I guarantee you that let's say the shoe was on the other foot. Instead of Cordelione banishing Pelosi from communion, let's say Bishop McElroy or Cardinal Supich decided to... Uh, let's say there were some Republican Catholic politicians in their diocese that were advocating the criminalization of homosexuality again, of putting men, for example, caught in gay bars, having promiscuous sex, putting them in jail and, and fining them severely uh, and, and rolling back all LGBTQ rights in housing, job discrimination, and so forth. In other words, a crystal knocked against gays, all right? Uh, you know, a pogrom against gays. And this is what these Republicans were going after. If Supich and McElroy were to say to those politicians, you may not present yourself for communion, until you have a change of heart, I guarantee you that Father Martin would be applauding them. Absolutely, yeah. He wouldn't be talking about a weaponized Eucharist. He would talking. To, he would be focusing on the gross immorality of what these men were proposing, mm-hmm. and therefore that it was entirely right for Cardinal Supich and and, and Bishop McElroy to go after them because uh, what they're what they're advocating is immoral. So, in other words, what it what it indicates is that Father Martin doesn't really think that abortion is all that big a deal. That's what it boils down to, because if the issue were not prenatal homicide, if it were in, in it was instead gay rights, he would be in favor, I think, of banning communion for politicians who were in favor of rolling back gay rights. I have That's no a doubt. Guess. Yeah, I have to guess, but yeah. I have no doubt. Same. I have no doubt of that. Uh, this is also not to psychologize too much of Father Martin here, but this is also part of his, his rehabilitation tour, because as soon as the Dobbs decision was announced. He said on Twitter, uh, you know, this is great. And he just got absolutely lambasted by many of his progressive followers for being supportive of this decision that, as you said, you know, quote, rolls back a fundamental human right, yada, yada, yada. And yeah. then so he had to do sort of a mea culpa. Uh, and he didn't he didn't totally backtrack his support for uh, overturning Roe, but he he did a mea culpa in many other forms. And I think this is part of that part of that rehabilitation to try to sort of gain well, clout back. I, I think it's right. What only goes to show too, that all that talk about the seamless garment of life ethic and all yeah. that, there is also a seamless garment of death and, and, and folks who support uh, one form of gross immorality tend to support other forms of gross immorality. And the sad fact is that father Martin has aligned himself with a certain spectrum of people, ideologically speaking, who are in what John Paul called the culture of death. Yeah, it's true. And, and that's why he's doing the mea culpas now, because actually his Catholic instincts, I have no doubt that he actually is opposed to abortion. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that he feels that it's it's that horrible or that wrong. Yeah. Uh, and and so, he, okay, he applauded the Dobb decision, but then immediately backtracks on it. Yeah, you're right, because all of his buddies on the progressive left ganged up on him. Uh, at which point it was a great teaching moment for him to teach about the seamless garment of life right. and all that, but he right. didn't. He didn't. Um, so anyway, that's yeah. that's. I mean, obviously, I I think I I know people that know Father Martin personally who say he's a great great guy. Uh, once again, as a pastor's soul, a very nice man, a pleasant man, a joy a joyful man. Uh, so I, I like I said, I, I, it brings me no joy to psychology. I'm just based on what I my opinion of his public comments, you know, exactly. what he has said publicly as, as a Roman Catholic Jesuit priest. And I think he, if he wants to present himself as a public figure 
uh, on hot button issues, then he has to expect hot button takes on what it is that he says. Yeah, that seems reasonable. That seems fair. Uh, well, Larry, we will uh, wrap it up there. We always end with our call to holiness note, but we 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 already covered that I think by pointing out that uh, that the call to holiness exists for all of us. That the grace is there for us to become saints. That yes. we can always aspire to more. Like the rich young man, we can be self-satisfied and smug in our self-satisfaction and approach Jesus and be told that we are doing nowhere near enough, that we can do more, that we can sell all of our possessions and give to the poor. Um, uh, so that is the call to holiness. That's what the call to holiness should look like in all of our lives. And um, Jesus, we know, will save his church, Larry. We know. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening uh, to my listeners. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the conversation. If you have feedback for Larry, questions about our conversation, topics for the next time that we chat, send me a note, zach at creedalpodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you.